Welcome to the Women's Health Podcast. I'm Marika Hart from Herosphere. And I'm Anthony Lowe, the Physio Detective. Together we interview leading authorities, answer questions and share our thoughts to provide the general public with the best quality information we can find on all aspects of women's health. Please remember that our materials and content on this podcast are intended as general information and for entertainment purposes only. They are not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis or treatment. Now it's time to get cracking with the episode. So whether you're out walking your dog, driving the kids to school or just sitting back enjoying a glass of wine, we hope you enjoy the show. Beautiful. Hey Diane, how are you going? I'm doing well, thanks Anthony. That's awesome. Hi Marika. Uh, let's get straight into it, hey? Um, look, today's topic is on diastasis and I thought the first question we should really ask uh, for our audience is what exactly is diastasis and what's the difference between a diastasis and a hernia? Mm, great question. So if you look at the definition of the word diastasis, it merely means a separation or a space. And so, so does a hernia means a separation. But a diastasis um, recti is it most often referred to as a stretch of the linea alba where there's tissue continuity between the two muscles. They, there actually isn't a tear or a break or a loss of continuity of connective tissue. Whereas in a hernia, there is. A hernia is a separation of uh, two muscles or within a muscle that then allows uh, other organs or body parts to protrude through. In a diastasis, it's more of a stretch as opposed to a loss of structural integrity of tissue. Okay, and what exactly is this tissue that's being stretched? So the tissue in the midline of our belly is called the linea alba or a white line. It's basically made of connective tissue, the same thing that your ligaments and fascia and tendons are made of. And it's an organization of tissue from the aponeurosis or from the continuations of muscles of the abdominal wall. So these varying layers of um, collagenous tissue, I suppose, comes together and merge into a uh, non-muscular band of tissue that connects the left and right sides of your body muscles together in the midline, of your abdominal muscles together in the midline. Diane, can you just tell us a little bit about who gets diastasis recti mm -hmm. and maybe how common it is? What a great question, Marika, because so many of the studies, a lot of the research on uh, this condition is, is being led by a group in Scandinavia. And so we know a lot about Scandinavian women, but from teaching around the world with this condition and talking to other uh, therapists in women's health, it's a, it's a condition that across the board is, is universal. It happens across all ethnicities, all ages, uh, all heights, all body weights, and there hasn't been anything mechanical that's been found in the sense of how much weight you put on, how big your babies are, um, how you carry your babies, how old you are, that's been shown to be a risk factor or a determinant for actually getting a persistent separation. Now, we also know that 100% of women in their third trimester have a stretched abdominal wall. It's impossible to make a baby and not stretch your abdominal wall. That's not the problem. The issue is, why doesn't it come back to a more healthy or normal state postpartum? So it's, it, we, we don't want to catastrophize or make the condition worse than it is. Everyone, everybody's belly stretches. And the variation is really quite big. So in this 2014, they showed that at 35 weeks of pregnancy, 100% of women had widths that were wider than normal, which is thought to be about two, two and a half centimeters, two and a half finger widths. But when you looked at the, the, um, the range that women had, they went from... 2.2 centimeters, which wouldn't even in this day and age be called a diastasis, to 12 centimeters. Now that's a big difference when you look at Mrs. At, Mrs. Mean, Mrs. Individual rather, Mrs. Individual and not Mrs. Mean. In other words, when they average the data. So there's a wide variation and we don't know um, exactly what it is that causes some women's skin to stretch, their tissue to stretch more than others. But so far we do know that it doesn't relate to body weight, baby size, or abdominal wall circumference. Doesn't seem to relate to how much you exercise, doesn't seem to relate 
to how old you are, what ethnicity you are, what language you speak. That hasn't been studied, sorry. Um, or anything. So it looks like it's coming down more to more physiological factors, but they haven't been studied. You know, vitamin C, folic acid, other things that relate to connective tissue have not been investigated in this condition. So we don't know, to, to be honest with you, what the risk factors are. And that's not an answer that um, is popular on the internet. There's many, many programs that will tell you, do this and you won't get it, do that and you will. And, and happy to share that there's no evidence behind any of that. We, uh, we don't know. Um, and so our best recommendations are ones that revolve around great function and great health and go from there. I'm so glad you say that, uh, Diane, because I've, I've had lots of theories going through my head and I've investigated with my pregnant clients and thought, Oh, she's definitely, you know, she's, she's going to have problems. Oh, she's really tall. She's got lots of space. She's carrying really well. She's going to be fine. And I improved wrong so often. Um, so yeah, yeah. So I, I think I'm really glad you say that because um, I find that I haven't, I haven't really been very good at predicting. Um, Clinical practice is humbling, hey? Clinical yeah. <laughs> practice is as soon as you think you know or understand something, someone comes along to prove you wrong, and that's that's the the beauty and the beauty and the beast of clinical practice. I've seen the same thing, you know. Um, in teaching in Japan for years, I used to ask my course host there, you know. Do Japanese women get diastasis? And she'd say, no, 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 we've never seen it. But they also never lift up the women's t-shirts to have a look. Mm. Once they started doing that, they went, oh, okay, some women have this condition as well. Because, you know, we used to hypothesize, oh, it's, it's about, you know, a little woman with a big guy, big babies, you know, mm. you're small, he's big, you're going to get one. I've seen women with triplets, you can never tell. And you see women with a small singleton, single baby, and they get into trouble. So mechanical well, factors. Gen and, genetics going on in there. Yeah, that hasn't been looked at either. Yeah, could be. Yeah, beautiful. Um, how, you know, our listeners are the general public. How would they know that they have this if, if nobody's pointed it out to them? And without, you know, making life fearful for people, what, what are the common things that people notice about a diastasis? The most common complaint across the board is that people keep asking them when they're having their baby and they're not pregnant. So they can't, they can't achieve, um, and it's not about having a flat abdomen, it's having one that doesn't seem pressurized or protuberant. They, they continue to appear to look pregnant in spite of all the training and exercises that they do because the abdominal wall has become um, excessively stretched and they may or may not be using their abdominal wall in a good way. I'm sure we're going to get into that in a moment. But for a lot of the women, their main complaint is um, appearance. And the other common complaint is the inability to generate enough strength for tasks or sports that require rotation. So tennis, squash, golf, paddleboarding, kayaking, canoeing. They can ride a bike, they can run, they can do uh, things that require them just to bend forward and come back up. And they're usually pretty strong in that plane, but they can't twist with any strength. Okay, beautiful. So um, just moving on to, to the next question, how do you measure it then? We've already heard that you've talked about some widths in terms of centimeters um how are the different ways to measure it and you know i know in the research there's lots of there's there's a standard protocol obviously can you explain some of the ways that different people measure and what some of the some of the different ways are and and maybe even refer to your research um on that Sure. So the gold standard for measuring it is to use um, a machine called ultrasound imaging, the same machine that you've probably first saw the first image of your uh, baby with. But that's in, in outside of Australia, that's not common for a lot of clinicians to have an ultrasound machine. And I'm certain that most moms don't have one at home. So how what moms are seeing is often this doming of the midline or a very small, narrow 
protrusion of their, the midline of their belly when they lift their head up off the pillow. So if they start to do a sit up, a curl up, or if they do, for example, lift two legs up at the same time, they may see this little pop of tissue or they may see a, a, a sucking in, an indenting of tissue in the midline. And when they push on it, they find that they can sink their fingers in, into their abdomen and they didn't used to be able to do that, particularly when they do do a curl up. Now, clinicians will measure the, um, the distance between the, the left and right rectus abdominal, which is rectus abdominis, which is your six pack mu muscle, the one that runs up and down in, in, in your abdomen. They'll measure that often by finger width. And the problem with that is everybody's fingers are a different width. So in centimeters, I'm, I'm sure, Anthony, your finger widths would be, if you said this woman had a two finger width diastasis, it would be a bit wider than mine or, or Marika's. Um, and it doesn't really matter. The, the width we've found, so I did a study with Professor Paul Hodges looking at the behavior of this little bit of tissue that connects your six pack muscles in a, in a curl up task in, in healthy, normal subjects and also in people who had um, distances between their six pack muscles wider than about three finger widths. We looked at that. And what we found is that every one of these women who had this wider than three finger width curl up had this doming or sagging in the midline and you could, and the tissue could be easily distorted. So you could, you could push that bit of tissue in or out, depending what you did with your breathing muscle, you could suck the tissue in with your diaphragm or push it out by pushing your diaphragm down. Whereas the healthy controls couldn't, it was always under tension. And so what we found in our studies is that the, when the interrecti distance or this distance between the left and right six pack muscles, when it could be tensed by your deepest abdominal, so the muscle that often isn't working well after pregnancy, when you could tense it with that muscle, you could control the doming or the sagging. In other words, if you use some of your abdominals well, but others not so well, you don't generate the best amount of tension between these two muscles. And if you think of it like a suspension bridge, if that suspension bridge between a canyon is kind of hanging and flopping and, and it, it's not gonna transfer load very well from side to side. But if you pull that bridge nice and tight, you're gonna be able to put a lot more load on that bridge and cross from one side to the other. And it's a very simple metaphor for uh, what we're trying to achieve with the training of someone with a diastasis. It's not about closing it. It really is about being able to tense it so that we can, we can transfer load. So finger width is the way to measure it, but don't get hung up on the number. It's not, there isn't a magic number that says, oh, you're bad, you're good. But what's good or bad is whether or not you can tighten it up um, and, and do what you want to do and look how you want to look. That's what's more important. Can I just clarify, when are you measuring, like you've mentioned the curl up, um, do you, do people lie flat and measure it with the ultrasound, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. like, like what is the procedure for measuring? So this is why we can't compare research studies because some studies have been done by looking, by starting point, looking at measuring it just in lying on your back with your hips and knees bent, which we call a hook lying position and they'd measure it there. Other studies have been done and people have been included in, in the study by measuring it when they're in the curl up position. Now the problem with that is that across the board, what happens in women with a stretched abdominal wall is that distance gets smaller when you do a curl up. So if you're comparing the results of one study that measured it at rest with another study that looked at the distance in a curl up, well, you're just not measuring, you're not measuring two identical situations. So it doesn't matter which one you do, but if you're going to compare how your diastasis is doing, make sure you compare it the same way from month to month. So it's easiest to feel the, the change in a very small head and neck curl. So you're lying on your back with your head on a small pillow, your hips and knees are bent. And then all you do is lift your head and your shoulders up off the pillow just to start to engage all of your abdominals and see what happens. Look for the dome or the sag in the midline. See if you can push your fingers into the midline. Um, and that'll tell you what your automatic strategy is. In other words, so how your brain is using your abdominal wall in a very automatic way without any 
pre-contraction of any, any muscles. Just what do you do normally? And that will tell you whether or not you automatically tend to generate tension in the midline for just that task, for that task. And that's usually the starting point in terms of um, the baseline point in terms of where we measure improvement from with training. And I think that's a really interesting point, um, Diane, about how far you lift up as well, because I've certainly seen in clinic, you know, women with really, really significant um, widening who, you know, have been told, yeah, no, no, you're one finger. But when they show me that, you know, they're, they're doing a massive curl up. And as you say, we know those two sides of the six pack muscles will approximate. They'll come nice and close together. So you can get this, you know, false, false negative um, just by lifting, lift curling up even higher. Um, do you do any other checks or ask your clients to do any other checks? For instance, um, lifting one leg up or standing on one leg. Do you have any other tests that you like to do just to check to see whether that the tummy muscles, the abdominal wall are functioning well? I do actually. And um, Mariki, would you, would you agree with me that most of the separations are at the level of the navel or the belly button and up? We don't find as many of them lower. Like ones I, that... Yeah. Most of them are up. So doing a, a test for control of your pelvis doesn't really pick most of them up. Now, somebody that has a very long diastasis or one that's going like from stem to stern, top to bottom, you'll, you'll have a control problem with the pelvis. But most of them have problems with controlling the middle of their low back and their, their chest or their thorax um, in relationship to, the, to their low back. So I, I like to use um, an arms out in front. So they take their arms right out in front of them and put their hands together. And then I give them a resisted rotation. So I put a little bit of resistance to rotation and I see whether or not they can keep their, their trunk their thorax lined up over their pelvis or do they shift from side to side? Do, does their low back go into flexion or extend and do, do they forward bend or rotate their back? So you should be able to, when a load is put through your hands like that, stay very still. You shouldn't have any shifting in, uh, in, in your chest or movement um, in your chest or your low back, unless you want to move, of course. But if the task is stay still, don't let me move you. And, and then I monitor you know, how much force. And I have used like a, a handheld uh, microdynamometer just to measure how much force compared to up and down. So I'll resist up and down, flexion, extension, movements or load, and then I'll measure left, right rotation loads and see what if they can um, really keep their thorax and their lumbar spine still when, when we do that. And um, that seems to pick up the difference between those that are going to get functional and those who aren't is if we give them a cue that, or an instruction that should bring on all of the abdominals and there's a massive change in their strength for rotation, then I know that the problem is the habit they've gotten into as a consequence of their pregnancy or pain or for, for whatever reason, it's, it's more um, a motor control or a habitual problem. These ones we can, we can train to get better pretty quickly. It's the ones that are starting to get that are pretty wide and you're wondering, gee, should we, should there be a surgical repair or not? Um, I've, I've seen a lot of women lately who are sort of getting really catastrophized about the condition when really they just need training. They just need to get to work and, and get their strategies improved and then get strong. And they, they, they get their goal, they get to where they want to be, but they've got their mindset that they, you know, need a surgery for, um, for, to get fixed and they, and they really, really don't. We can, I think we clearly have the tests now that can differentiate who, who should go for surgery and, and who can we train. So resisting rotation, resisting flexion extension. Um, you can do the same thing in supine with either a single or a double leg raise. Um, I think it's a little more functional to test in a, in a torque resistance kind of thing. Um, the squat doesn't really usually help me much or a lunge because they're usually pretty controlled through their pelvis. It's, it's connecting your upper body to your lower body that seems to be more of the problem. I find sometimes just doing um, some kind of straight arm pull down, resisted yeah. pull down as well. Yeah, or one arm, better. particularly one arm. Yeah. Particularly one arm, right? Two arms they're not as bad with, but um, unless it's right around the navel and the umbilicus and they can't control their back. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, yeah. Good tests, simple tests as well. Yeah. For me, there's lots of... Um... There's lots of concern amongst my patients and amongst 
therapists and amongst the internet about the gap. We gotta close the gap. Um, and 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 then we've already discussed the, the the difficulties of measuring and what does the gap mean? How do you measure the gap and all the rest of it? Um, because as Marika said, you know, one of the protocols is for you to get the very inferior, the, the very bottom of your shoulder blades just off of the bed. That's how far you have to curl up. Like head and neck lift is a little bit different. Um, tell us about this debate and and should people be worried about the gap? Well, it depends what happens in the gap. So I think anyway, so the studies that were done on Scandinavia um, only measured the, the distance, the gap, the size of the gap, but not what happened to the tissue in the gap with respect to distortion, doming or sagging, that little blippy bit of tissue. And what they showed was that when you do um, an abdominal curl up or a short head and neck curl up, the gap narrows. When you use all of your abdominals, particularly the deepest abdominal, transversus abdominis, what it tends to do is it makes the gap bigger. So the assumption was that that must be bad because if the goal is to close the gap and nobody ever proved or showed that that was necessary for function, there was just an assumption that the gap should close because that was a difference between healthy normals and women who are, who are struggling that if that was the only goal, then we shouldn't be using the deepest abdominal, we should only be doing curl-ups. And this really, really um, confused clinicians worldwide because here we were training all of the abdominals in a very organized way and women were getting better. They, they liked how they were feeling, they liked how they were looking, they were able to function at a higher level, things were going great. And now all of a sudden the evidence is saying, don't exercise your deep system. Don't exercise transversus. Only do curl-ups because transversus will pull it wider. You shouldn't be doing it. So for a while there, there was just mass confusion. Do we do it or do we not? And I, I think I, I find it a little um, hilarious that people think that because the evidence says you shouldn't be doing something, then you shouldn't, even though their clinical expertise showed that when you did it a different way, you were, women were getting the outcome that they wanted. So that's why I was really happy when... Um, our study was published and, and showed that, um, yes, you can narrow the gap with doing, with doing curl-ups, but you won't generate tension. And that when you use all the abdominals in an efficient, in a very effective, efficient way, the gap gets wider, but the distortion gets less. And then the next studies that we're going to be doing will be more um, qualitative there rather than quantitative. And it's going to be on, um, more about how women feel about themselves and how, how they look and measure that um, against what the gap is doing. My clinical experience, and, and Marika, you probably have a similar experience, is that often the gap initially gets wider, the doming goes away, their, their pain scores go down, their functional scores improve, they look better, they feel better, and the gap often gets wider. So we have to, I think, we have to start de-emphasizing the importance of the gap and more importance on, func on more functional scores in terms of performance and what, and, and what they're able to do. Not about the gap. We can find it if we want, but we get obsessed with it. <laughs> I think all three of us would say too that we've, we've had many clients with really significant um, widening through the linear alba who have just achieved amazing things uh, functionally. Um, and, and because of what you're saying, like just um, treating the whole abdominal wall and the whole person um, mm -hmm. and then and loading it and just watching out for what happens to that tissue. Um, which, just moving on to our next question, I know, Diane, we could probably talk to you about things all day. Um, a lot of people ask, you know, does it, does it heal? Um, can it heal on its own? Is there anything that's going to make it heal faster, quicker, better? You kind of touched on this, I think, before. So, you know, maybe just in summary. Yeah, the, the, obviously the evidence-based answers we don't know. Um, what I've what I've seen in probably five or six women who I thought had gaps wide enough that they probably should consider surgery, um, but they they didn't want to because they wanted to have more children, and that what they had done in the time between their babies is train really well, 
And we've actually seen the, the linea alba dense up. So that connective tissue actually, the gap didn't get narrower, but the distortion got less. And I think it's very much like the research we're seeing with the Achilles tendinopathy and, and the gluteal tendinopathy is that for collagen to heal, and we talk about what healing means in a moment, you have to load it. You have, you can't, you can't just brace it shut, offload it, and think of it like a cut on your finger that if I don't move this for a while, it will heal. Because there's really no inflammatory state there, or there's not a lot of, to my knowledge, cellular stimulus, right? Stuff going on, right? Mm -hmm. um, and and collagen responds to load. So how how we how we load it and stress it is going to get more of a fibroblastic or more of a cellular response that is going to actually stiffen, stiffen it up. And, and I've had, you know, as I said, five or six people who I previously would have thought um, would have been surgical actually, actually do, do quite well. Now, that doesn't mean their bellies are flat. They're significantly stretched. They still have a soft, protuberant sort of profile of their abdomen, but they're functional. They're functional. So they may not look the prettiest, but they, they can transfer load, they can do everything, do everything that they want to do. So there's a difference between what's a functional DRA look like and does that look exactly the same as somebody who, for example, a functional DRA at five or six centimeters, what does that abdomen look like as compared to someone who's at two or two and a half? They, they do look different, but they can function the same. Beautiful. I, I'm... I know that a lot of people and you know, all three of us are clinicians. So we tend to see the people that come into our clinic, right? Um, there's a lot of people that will listen that don't have a therapist yet. Who needs treatment for this? Like if we mm -hmm. know that everybody has a stretched tummy, like, should everybody run in and 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 get assessed? Like, what are some of the things? Like, how do we determine who needs treatment? Well, I, I think what we're pushing for here in British Columbia is we're trying to get funding for every woman to have a postpartum screen between um, at, by three months. So at 12 weeks postpartum and not just for the abdominal wall, but for the pelvic floor as well. So there should be no more urinary leakage. There should be no more sensations of perineal pressure, no more rectal pain. And you should be able to do a short head and neck curl up, like just lift your head up off the pillow and not have this doming in your abdomen. So by three months, um, things should be looking pretty good. And in one assessment, um, I think I think it's mandatory. I, I, I really think that that's required. It's what we're trying to push for funding for, for all, all women in our province. Um, France has it. So in, in France, they have very good coverage for postpartum moms to sort of make sure that they have body back after baby. And I know in Canada, we don't, we don't have that. And so what's happening here is that women are going back to boot camp, to Pilates, to yoga, and they're starting their training sometimes at a level that's a little bit too high and maybe missing a, a fundamental piece, whether it's in their pelvic floor or their, their abdominal wall, that with very little intervention, um, could just set an entirely different trajectory for the next 20, 30 years. You know, there was an interesting study done by um, Spitznagel from St. Louis a long time ago now, where they showed that 66% of women with a diastasis had some pelvic floor related dysfunction. And that meant either urinary incontinence, uh, constipation, or pain with intercourse. And so there was, there was a relationship, didn't necessarily say one caused the other, but there was a relationship. And then in 2016, the Scandinavia group um, looked at the same question and they found that there was no correlation. And so there was some confusion there clinically about it until you looked at the subjects that they studied. The Spitznagel study looked at women 30 years postpartum. They were, average age was 50. And in Scandinavia study, the subjects were all up to six months postpartum. So my takeaway from those two studies is that you may be okay um, six months postpartum with an abdominal wall that doesn't work well, but 66% of you are not going to be okay 20 or 30 years from now. Now, we don't have the longitudinal studies to say we know this for sure, but it makes 
it makes sense to me that if we can get our house in order in that first, you know, six, nine months postpartum, it has the potential to have a big impact on what we are doing and what we're able to do as high functioning women in our 40s, 50s, 60s and, and, and beyond. I, I feel quite strongly about that. And I, yeah. I feel we need to give our moms that opportunity of the assessment. Yeah. I think um, what's interesting about that that Scandinavian study in 2016 is also that those who had the DRA had less incidence of pelvic organ prolapse. It's, it's always been a wonder of mine since that study. Is the diastasis protective of the pelvic floor? It serves a function and then, you know, what we do in life is supposed to get back to relative normal, control the pressure, spread that load. And then somewhere along the line, Spitznagel is a, you know, is a consultant. So he gets referral bias as well. Those with the problems then are showing up. And, and like you said, there's somewhere between one year postpartum and 20, 30 years postpartum that we don't know about in these people, yeah. you know? So um, that I, I think the big takeaway for me from those were um, it's, it's how you do things that, that, that is most important and that's why you know i agree with you i think that every woman should at least get somebody who has a good idea about how to do these things uh to have a look and and to start getting a little bit of advice to them just about how they do things makes a difference um, totally totally so i mean um I'm, I'm sure Marika, you've had the same experience. I know Anthony, you have. You, you you look at these moms that come in postpartum. You ask them how they're doing, and you go, "Oh no, I'm doing really great." And so, so you know, how's the lifting coming? How's it being looking after two, three kids? And you go, "Yeah, no problem." I said, "So show me how you lift," and you just you you almost want to catch them and stop them before they do it because you can just see their bellies expanding, their butts tucking, their heads going forward, and you think, "Okay, maybe one or two times doing that's not a problem." But to repeatedly move like that and in that way, and I know you're going to get into no, no evidence has shown that that form is, is important. It just happens to be a bugbear of mine, right? <laughs> I, think, I, think, I think some form, it, it doesn't mean everybody has to do the same, same I things. I like variety. I only like variety. I like variety. I like yeah. variety yeah. too. That's where we ways, agree. Yeah. Yeah. There's some ways that people do things that you kind of go, that's not great. Like you would never ever say to someone, it's okay to walk on the side of your foot and roll over on your ankle every time you do it. And I think we can make the same argument for the, for the trunk. There's some better ways to load than there are others. But, well, and, uh, and diastasis is a very mechanical issue. And mm -hmm. if you're looking for a certain mechanical result, then the way that you mechanically do it does make a difference. Um, True. You know, although I would, I, I would jump in on the comment that it's simply a mechanical issue. It, or I think if you, if you looked at, if you interviewed a lot of women who weren't necessarily coming into care, because um, what brings them into care is maybe a symptom, but more often yeah. it's psychology, and uh, not happy with their body appearance, not happy with intimacy, not happy with being seen naked. Uh, by their partners. Um, so, and those things have huge relationship um, impacts, you know, when you, when you don't want to get naked with your best bud, it's, um, and don't feel good about yourself. It has huge, huge implications for relationship and good on them for wanting to, um, wanting to take that on. I agree. And you're absolutely right. I, I misspoke and thank you for pulling me up on that. Um, <laughs> um, I, I would also add like, just in terms of you were talking about the, the biomechanics and we didn't really want to dive too much into that. But I will often say to my clients, rather than saying, this is, you know, don't do it like this and this is wrong. Um, I do think a lot of the times they, they we will see the back muscles, um, they'll pull themselves into a position where they'll just use those muscles all the time and they'll just hang off their abdominal wall and the, and the tummy muscles are just not wanting to work. And I'll say to them, look, we're just trying to get some balance because these ones aren't doing much and these ones are doing too much. And hey, let's try something a little bit different so we can get these to switch on a little bit more um, and just kind of talk yeah. a little bit more like that, if you know what I mean, rather than you must stand like this, you are a robot. But, 
Yeah. No. Yeah. I, I know. I think we're all on the same page with that. <laughs> oh yeah. And language is really, really important. And Absolutely. and and you know, you brought up a really good point, Marika. That that's exactly what we see. They they use their back muscles a ton because their front muscles aren't working well for them. And it's about sharing the load. Yeah. Sounds like something you would say, actually. Share oh, that yeah, load. it's almost like spread, spread the, load. the load. I say that a lot. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, beautiful. Con conservative management. Yeah. Sorry? I was yeah. going to say, should we move on to exercises? Yeah, conservative management. Yeah. What What does that look like? Are there exercises to do? What What makes the tummy come together or stay apart? Are there things to do or things to avoid? We've touched on a few of these already, but... Happy to review them again. There's nothing wrong with repeating ourselves. No, not at all. Um, so first of all, it's highly individual. You won't find a recipe or a protocol because this is a condition that is often about pressure. Um, it's about uh, how, how you're using your abdominal walls now. Are you using too much of your external oblique, too little, too much of your internal oblique, too little? Is it more one-sided than the other? So there's so many different combinations of, um, I don't want to say wrong ways, that's catastrophizing it, but probably less optimal ways of, of using your trunk muscles. And that needs to be individually assessed. So that at the end of the day, there are um, exercises and training for um, that, that integrates all of the abdominal wall well. Nothing should be avoided, but everything needs to be assessed in terms of whether or not the person is ready to take on that level of a task. I don't believe in telling women they should never do sit-ups. I don't believe in telling women they should never do planks or curls or turkey get-ups or anything. If you, if you want to do that, then let's, let's help build a prescriptive exercise program to get you to that level where you can do it. Now, Obviously, um, some people may have some physical restraints in terms of if they've never done it before, like if you've never done a full back bend before at the age of 40 is not the time to start trying to do it. But if you want to, well, maybe we can. We can progress towards it, right? We can, yeah, we can progress towards it. Exactly, exactly. So um, it's really common postpartum to have, you know, the deep muscles, transversus abdominis not working well, but not always. And so if those are already working well and they're online or on board, then you don't need to, to do any transversus training if it's working well for you. Maybe the imbalance is between your internal and external oblique. Maybe the IO is internal oblique is pulling things apart too wide, not being balanced enough by the external oblique. So then we need to give you more exercises or cueing to bring your awareness to don't let your rib cage widen so much as you do this. So it's very task specific in terms of you're, you're building an exercise program where they can manage loads in variety in many different directions and planes. And which is why you can't just give somebody a booklet of exercises and say, just do these from A to B, because number one, no one has time to do all of 80, them. 90, all of them. You got to pick out the key ones that are prescriptive and rehabilitative for that person. And then show them how to monitor when they're doing things right or better and when they're doing things in a less, optim less optimal way. And once they know for themselves how to do a self-check, let them go. Let them, let them go and take responsibility for their own, for their own training. And, but but um, sometimes it, it starts off with certainly supervised training. Watch them exercise. Just don't send them home with a piece of paper because you have no idea what they're doing. You have to watch what they're doing. Um, and then after a few sessions, once you once they can feel in their body um, that shared the load well, that didn't. This this worked well. My my little tummy domed when I did this. That's not so good. Let's see if I can generate some tension. And if generating the tension makes a difference in their um, performance, so they feel stronger, they can move move more, lift more, do whatever. Um, just so they have some parameters or ways of measuring that they're moving forward and not. In, in an integrated way. I'm, not, I'm struggling with the layman language, can you tell? Um. <laughs> so shall I just, can I just clarify, Diane? So for people who don't have ultrasound, and so the main things that they are watching for in their body will be when they're performing an exercise, does that um, tissue in the midline come up? Does it drop down? Yep. And then you were saying, you were touching a little bit on the rib cage. So do, um, every time they do a particular activity, does the rib cage do that or does it do that so is it more that we just don't want to do everything the same way all the time 
Yeah, exactly, exactly. So that angle between your ribs at the front of your rib cage shouldn't, when you, when you curl or when you move, um, just mainly when you do a curl up, it shouldn't widen and it shouldn't narrow. So if all of the muscles are working in harmony, it'll stay, it'll stay the same. Now, if you're rotating, sure, there's gonna be a change certainly from side to side, but the other thing that shouldn't happen is you shouldn't have this shift from side to side if, you're, if you are not intending to shift. If you're intending to stay straight, then it should stay straight. So to watch for any, it's not really a collapse, it's too strong of a word, but it's more of a subtle, compression into the body and then going off to one side like you want to try and stay really lengthened like a like a slinky remember the old toy the slinky i often use this in my uh <laughs> my drawer for, for but that's how the trunk should function it shouldn't function in this in this compressed way right um so yeah watching for watching the mid feeling for the midline tissue or watching it depending on what kind of top you're wearing i suppose in the gym or in the studio and um, and also, how does it feel? Like, does it does it feel good? Does it feel does it feel like you feel like a real power horse, or do you feel like you're just efforting and plowing through? You know, like stop, reset, check your strategies, engage all systems, and go. See how it feels. And it's a bit of a trial and error, I find. Um, yeah. yeah, I'm thinking of a lady I saw last week who's about four or five years down the track, and she's she does lots of yoga, she runs marathons, um, and she she probably had a about a sort of four to five finger separation, but we were just practicing plank positions because she wanted to get good for that, for the chaturanga. Is that what it is? I always forget what it's called. Um, <laughs> she was amazing though, because she had such a good connection with her body that I could just say, can you just try thinking about your hip bones drawing together, for example, and she just got it. And she immediately felt, oh my gosh, my, my, my abdominal, my tummy feels completely different. And so, or we would try maybe switch your pelvic floor on or think about growing tall or whatever, like different cues. And I, I don't know, do you, do you find as well, you guys, for different people that different cues work? Yes, absolutely. And, and the interesting one, I, I don't think we have any evidence, to my knowledge, we don't, as to whether or not the pelvic floor should reflexly give you a connection to the upper fibers of TA. So the ones that are interdigitating with the diaphragm and the very highest part of the abdominal wall. I find there's a lot of women that their pelvic floor cue will get the middle and the low fibers of transversus, mm -hmm. but not the upper fibers. So I've been playing with more rib cage to rib cage cueing, um, which runs into the risk, of course, of getting EO, external oblique. So we have to be careful with that, that they're not bracing the rib cage, that they're getting that deep connection from transversus and the horizontal fibers of the diaphragm, the costal fibers of the diaphragm in the front. That really seems to um, not, not mitigate, but it seems to counteract the lateral pull of the internal oblique. So when they're really um, internal oblique dominant and they're getting this massive rib cage widening at the top if we can get a really local specific cue to hold the almost like the eighth ninth and tenth ribs in the middle there just imagine the guy wire the line connecting those two together um i've been sort of playing around with that one a little bit seems to be working independent of a pelvic floor or a pelvis cue for ta or a low belly lift low belly lift cue when you think about it, those muscles were named in the 1500s before we even knew the nerve supply or had any of Donna Urquhart's or Hodge's studies on terms of how, how those muscles work. It's not surprising that they may actually be three different muscles than one muscle, but I guess yeah. that's a, that's a discussion. <laughs> not for the public. It. It's hard to change yeah. it now. <laughs> what I'm hearing a lot of, Diane, um, which I love, is that you see the things that people do and the things that they don't have a preference for doing or even just unable to do in their current situation coordination and you get them to do the things that they can't do. Um, would that be a fair assessment? Like you, you, you see what they want to do and you see their preferences and you give them different ways to, to get to where they want to go. Absolutely. And that's why it's hard to write it on paper or to say, you know, here's your program. You've been diagnosed with a diastasis. This is what you should do. It's, it's simple, but it's not simple to 
um, the process the is simple, right? The process is simple. The There's lots of complexity involved in, in how we make those decisions. It is, but it's not, it, it's not, it's not complex. It's no. not complex. No. There's depth. Beautiful. Um, yeah. Are there, are there factors that, that affect the closure? Like are there things that, that people are doing, which, yeah. you know, they, they want their flat tummy. Right. We've already talked about the importance of aesthetics, um, things that you recommend. We're going to get people asking, what about, should I use a brace after giving birth? Um, those sorts of things. What would you say to that? Well, I'm not a fan of braces for function. Um, people, I, I understand it for cosmetic regions. Like if you're going out to a fancy evening dinner party and you don't want to be asked if you're pregnant wearing Spanx or an abdominal binder to change the profile of your abdomen while you're in a sexy dress that possibly you can feel good in, then yeah, go for it. That's totally fine. But I'm not a big fan of abdominal binders thinking that that's going to hold you together and repair something. Um, I don't, I don't think it will. It doesn't change anything. For me, the, there's, there's two things that, that I go after. Um, one is whatever it is that's causing the excessive intra-abdominal pressure. So sometimes that relates to posture. So if the pelvis is, is, is swayed forward and the thorax is back and they're collapsing in their body, that kind of thing, which tends to be a typical postpartum posture with moms carrying lots of kids, um, we kind of hang into our bodies that can be very pressurizing and also diet so anything that makes the the gut swell the intestines swell so if there are any gluten sensitivities dairy lactose alcohol sugar so the big key inflammatory things for the gut that that tends to make a big difference as well because you they don't have the same abdominal wall resistance to support and hold their 23 feet of swollen intestines compared to the lighter intestines. So I've had a number of women do well with um, diets that are more anti-inflammatory, sort of more cut out the processed foods and give up the alcohol and sugar for a while and figure out if you're sensitive to dairy or gluten or not. Um, they, they, it's tend to be, you know, the, the back-breaking thing for in terms of the pressure. Um, because if your if your intestines or your viscera, gut viscera, are unhappy, there is a reflex inhibition of the abdominal wall. I mean, we see it in IBS, which is an extreme of that condition, irritable bowel, um, a lot where people can't recruit the deep abdominal really well because it hurts, right? Mm. And so there's a point between when it hurts and when it doesn't hurt, but just isn't working well, where there tends to be inhibition of the of the system. So posture, pressure strategy and gut health those are the things that i i tend to use to facilitate the whole healing process and a healthy diet i mean if we do end up finding that there's you know something in collagen deficiency in these women then i mean maybe on a broad spectrum across the board uh, i mean the guys that got scurvy years and years ago had no idea how important vitamin c was and so who knows who knows what we're going to find out down the road what may possibly be missing for connective tissue resilience in, in women. So a healthy diet can help, but help. With, Diane, um, can we, oh, sorry. Oh, gonna... Sorry, sorry. Just really quickly on that point. Um, and I feel like, I feel like, I feel like the monster for raising it. But for me personally, I know with my abdomen, with the visceral load that I carry, with the visceral fat that I carry, that it it's made a difference to to my you know like i feel like i'm bordering on on developing diastasis um how much of of a role does does the the visceral fat around the organs affect um just the pressure as well you know simple weight um and physical load anteriorly so it's an issue between whether we're talking about a male DRA and a female DRA because more men put more weight on inside their abdominal wall, women put it on outside the abdominal wall. But that's not to say that men don't have outside abdominal wall fat and women don't have inside abdominal wall fat. But in general, that for the, the men with the DRA, 
The problem is they never deliver their baby. The fat stays inside them, right? So the fatty omentum and, and the visceral, the visceral fat that, that, um, that's, that's a more dietary and lifestyle uh, way we have to go at it to get that reduced. It's not often just about training that they have to reduce the pressure on the inside because they haven't delivered their baby yet. For children with diastasis, often the kids that I see, they're usually eight, between eight and 12 years old. They often have never developed good strategies in the first place. These are kids that didn't quite figure out how to share the load front to back, top to bottom. They often have really strong um, back extension reflex. They can't flex their flex their head and extend their back, extend their, uh, flex their back, extend their head. They can't break that neck, low back um, uh, reflex. And I've seen, so in the DRA guide, there's a case story of a little guy who's eight years old and his his gap was already three centimeters at the age of eight. No studies that have shown how big, what the size should be for kids, but certainly by the time they're eight to 10 years old, we certainly expect them to be standing tall, their little bellies coming in, not having this protuberant abdominal posture. So that's more a motor learning um, problem. And so it takes longer with the motor learning than for postpartum moms where it's motor remembering. So the strategies have been there well before. It's a little bit quicker to get the training going. Um, uh, so again, three different, three different reasons, three different, three different whys, but um, complex, but simple. Diane, if we, can we just take a little bit of a step back into pregnancy? I know that um, yeah. you kind of covered it before, but I really want to sort of emphasize for people who are listening at home, because what I hear a lot for postnatal mums is there's often a lot of self-blame if they have diastasis mm -hmm. and I shouldn't have done this in pregnancy and I was doing my you know CrossFit classes or I was doing whatever and I was lifting and I probably made it all worse um, do you think that there are any exercises or things that people should avoid in pregnancy or um, any things that you see I guess in your clinic with your patients that you think might have contributed to that situation um I really don't like the the internal oblique dominating. So, and I don't have any evidence for that, Marika. I don't know, but I, when I see somebody who 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 doesn't know how to support that infrasternal angle, so again, that angle just in between your rib cage of the highest part of the abdomen, when when it's really um, when the internal oblique is pulling that wide, and there's no support there from the, the transversus and the breathing muscle, the diaphragm. That one I do go after. So things like had a, a woman who had done back bends, standing back bends as just part of her exercise routine and her yoga. And she was still doing them in the third trimester of her pregnancy. And the amount of pressure that was being produced as she forced her baby forward into that space might have been okay, but I sort of recommended that she stopped doing that just because it was it. There were so many pressure contributions. Did I have a, a prediction or an idea that it would for sure cause her trouble? No, and and that's a problem with when we ask people to stop doing things. I think at this point in time, it just has to be based on logic and common sense, and watching how they're doing it. And and if you watch how someone's doing something, and and it looks like they're supporting you know, themselves really well as they're doing it. Um, it's probably not a problem, but I think anything that really increases a lot of, a lot of pressure or a lot of connective tissue load, that's yeah, probably cautious to just drop back in the last trimester. In fact, you know, in the last six weeks, most women can't do it anyway, because they're barely breathing, right? Like when they're so big, they can't send their diaphragm. They're not doing a lot of the high load, high load stuff. Um, but otherwise in a pregnancy, um, it's it's not a good time to start a new sport, pregnancy, but if you've been doing it before and you have really good strategies and ways of doing things, I, I don't I don't have people stop what they're doing. The only what's what's hanging around in the back of my mind is the the mom that comes in. I'm sure you've heard the story. In and around my 27th, 28th week, I felt this ripping sensation in the middle of my abdomen, and. You know, when it's that ripping, burning sensation, I always think that it's fascial, no matter where that is. And you kind of wonder, um, 
you know, what were they doing at the time? And they're usually training or exercising at the time when it, when it happens. But you can't predict it. You can't say who's going to have it and who's, who's not. So it's, do we err on the side and stop people from doing things that, that, are, that are good for them and that are healthy for staying fit for their delivery just because we're afraid that something's going to happen? I, I, I don't think we have, I don't see enough uh, problems with training to recommend that people stop training or exercising through pregnancy. I, I see more benefits than I see negatives with it. I really do. And all yeah. the research supports that too, which yeah, is fantastic. Yeah. It's always it's always good for that. <laughs> um, just um, moving on to surgical management. Now, I, I learnt from, from both you and LJ um, a long time ago that you had this surgical referral um you know somebody's got a diastasis it's persistent there's been a lot lots of things done who is the woman that should consider surgical management of this so the the woman who has an eight nine ten finger separation is a no-brainer so the ones that where they're they're like so 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 wide um and you're looking at three four years postpartum um that that and they can't generate tension they always dome they have no strength they're often um failure to have continence they have back pain so that whole collection of, of symptoms i can i can in one go recommend that okay this this is where we go the trouble ones the ones that you always have to train first or see what happens is the ones that are like between four and five centimeters because some of them can get better and be quite functional and some of them can't. So there, there isn't a cutoff point or a cutoff number in my experience. So you have to assess, we assess the abdominal wall for width and for behavior of the tissue. Can they generate tension with different strategies or different ways of cueing and using the abdominal wall? And I usually give them about four to six weeks of, of, of training and before I make the decision as to whether they're surgical. But if after four to six weeks of training, if they can recruit all the, the abdominal muscles really well, and you almost always need an ultrasound to be able to tell that because what they're not able to do is to generate tension. And one of the things that clinicians look for to know that these deep muscles are working is that this sensation of, of tension that they feel in their thumbs. Well, if the muscle's working at the side, but it's not able to generate any tension in the midline, you don't even know the muscle's working unless you put an ultrasound on it. It's hard, it's hard to tell. And so if, it, if the muscle's working and unable to generate tension, and they can't control the loads of their thorax or their lumbar spine or pelvis, uh, in spite of that really good recruitment, then those are the ones that I'm sending for consideration for, for, sur for surgery. So it's a collection. It's not just based on one test alone. Um, it's based on a accumulation of three or four tests, not a ton, three or four, three or four tests. But almost always I will, I'll train someone first before I make that decision. Cool. And do you, do you, Oh, <laughs> we're just jumping in on each other. Do you, do you think, um, doing some strength training regardless. So just say they're in the back. I've got a lady at the moment I'm thinking of. I think she's going to need surgery. Um, she wants to wait a little bit, which is, which is fine. In my mind, I'm thinking the stronger we make it, if we can, um, maybe, maybe with training it, maybe we're going to make, you were talking about the collagen fibres, maybe yeah. we're going to thicken that up a bit. Do you think people will have a better outcome if they are stronger before they go in? So the one example I can give you is, um, and this was more about um, a hernia repair. It was my brother, actually. His story's in the book as well. So he had an emergency appendectomy surgery, and, they, and the, the tissue around the umbilicus was not, um, wasn't properly repaired with, after his appendectomy. So a year later, he developed a hernia. They went in with mesh, and they repaired it, and then his whole linea alba let go. So he had... Um, in the upper part of his abdomen, he had a DRA. In the middle part of his abdomen, he had a hernia. So the top part was stretched. The middle part was torn, right? So he had both conditions going in. And he lived about, he lives about four hours from me. And so Dr. Demianchuk is the surgeon that I work with. And so he agreed to repair Dan's abdominal wall. But I didn't have a chance to work with my brother before he went in for surgery. And he was unilaterally, so on one side of the body, very 
um, dominant in his internal oblique, meaning he had one muscle on one side of his abdomen that worked harder than the same muscle on the opposite side. And he didn't have really good control of, of his deepest muscle, transversus. So in other words, his whole abdominal wall was just playing jazz. It was acting like chaos. It just wasn't integrated well at all. And they had a really tough time repairing the, 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 the hernia and narrowing the DRA because these muscles kept pulling against the repair. So I think when we, when we optimize the function of the abdominal wall and strengthen as much as we can, it, it eliminates those complications that the surgeon may have from having this asymmetric pole, one side, one side to the other when they go in. And I think five weeks later, when the system wakes up again, it's usually between five and seven weeks that, that you know, the inflammation's down from the skin repair and everything else that they start to train again. The brain, it hasn't been so long that the brain forgets how to use these muscles in a better way. And so the how comes back online faster without having to then retrain recruitment strategies and the rest of that. And then I think, I think they get a, they all get a really good outcome, but they get a good outcome faster if we've been able to work with them before. And they know what to look for. They know what to look for. I mean, the number of texts I get from women after surgery where they, they, they send me a text basically saying, I'm back. I can feel it. My muscles are working again and it feels like Spanx. It feels amazing because they've, they've been working with the system before they've gone into surgery and, um, and they're able to pick it up after that five to six weeks of repair afterwards. So long answer to short one. Yes. Yes, definitely worth doing. Yeah. And then post-surgical management, you know, like lots are not being spoken about this. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, it seems like lots of physios don't like the surgery, mm -hmm. but look, there's, there's a place for surgery as we've already discussed. And even if it's for aesthetics, like, I mean, if that's mm -hmm. super important, then that's it. Yeah. Right. Um, the post-surgical management, what are you doing for these, um, women after they have surgery? Can you give us like a timeline of what's so, going on when? Yep. So for the first, um, two weeks, 10 days to two weeks, they'll often will have drains in between the skin and the abdominal wall because the skin is lifted right up to the rib cage. And so to prevent any water beds, they're called seromas, any fluid accumulation underneath the skin, uh, you're often sent home with, um, with a drain. It's day surgery. It's about two and a half, three hours long. It's day surgery. You go home with these with drains in and you're wearing a compression garment. So a garment just to, to uh, keep the skin connected to to the tissue underneath it. So that's the first thing that has to heal is the skin. And it heals pretty quick. Um, the incision in the skin heals within like three weeks. Um, but there's still significant enough, hmm, it's not significant enough, moderate amount of pain that there's uh, but it's totally controlled with like extra strength Tylenol. You're not on not on narcotics or anything heavy duty at all for like another couple weeks. So at about the first 24 hours, you need some help at home. But after that, um, you're up and around and moving, moving quite well. And can you still hear me? I think I'm about to lose my phone. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, so after about five weeks when the deep system starts working then we start then we start training them again so connecting to the deep system through pelvic floor ta whatever cues we found that that have worked um, usually by about seven or eight weeks i'm starting to introduce movement so we start off just by waking up the deep system getting a sense of feeling the ab ab abdomen contract there's still log rolling to get up and to push down not much lifting during this time but between about six and eight weeks is when we can start actually doing some rollbacks some gentle curls i'm a big fan of of reverse curls and upper abdominal curls and starting curling is life you you curl back to put on your seat belt to reach we, we can't just be a rigid plank so i introduced just trunk movement curls without long lever arm stuff fairly quickly by three months you can pretty much start doing whatever it is you can do. Now, of course, that requires an assessment. What can you do? The longer your legs, the longer your arms, the heavier they are, the, the more we have to keep it close to the body. The shorter your arms, the lighter your legs, the more you can get them out straight. So it's just all physics, right? Um, but by three months onward, the, the healing the healing's done and, and you move forward. I usually see post-surgical women maybe three, four times. That's about it once between five and seven weeks, a couple weeks later, 
once a couple times after that and then they're well on their way yeah. beautiful it's fantastic um look i have tons more questions loads more questions <laughs> but i'm I was really... like oh oh <laughs> <laughs> um we 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 are we are coming short on our time mm -hmm. so i I uh, just want to take this opportunity to say thank you, Diane, for coming on and sharing your expertise with us. Um, we'll make sure that we've got a link to, so that people can find you um, and your book um, uh, on, on, on the show notes and um, really do appreciate your time and your expertise and, and just over, you know, throughout my career, your, your effect the work that you've done mm -hmm. and, and how it's shaped me. I, I really do appreciate, um, you. Uh, you know, your contribution to the world of physio and, and ongoing, you know, the, the, the evolution of when I first met you in 2005 to now, very different, um, you know, and, and as it should be, right. We all agree lifelong learning. So, yeah. yep, absolutely. So thank you. Thank you for the invitation to do this. And my passion has been helping postpartum moms, for 30, 40 years and continues to be so. So thanks a lot for everything. Thanks, Marika. Thanks. Thank you so much. It's been awesome talking to you. Yes, you too. Thanks so worth getting out of bed early. <laughs> well, that's it for this episode. Please be sure to hit like if you enjoyed this episode and leave any comments or questions below because we'd really love to hear from you. If you haven't already hit subscribe, please do so now so that you can be kept notified of when we release a new episode. Otherwise, thank you for listening and we look forward to having you back with us for another episode of the Women's Health Podcast.